Hello, and welcome to the Confident Human Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. I'm your host, Lexia Yesa. On this podcast, you can expect to hear from people who are comfortable with the uncomfortable. Everyone you will hear from has turned one of their vulnerabilities into a superpower. Our hope is that these stories will help you have the confidence to face your demons too. Real talk, real people, all living their lives in confidence. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, you'll be meeting confident human, Polly Rodriguez. She's a very good friend of mine and an old colleague after meeting at a small startup called Grouper. Since we worked together, she started a sexual wellness company called Unbound, and she's really doing so much to empower women along their journey to understanding their sexuality. She's just so passionate, but also just so strong and strong-willed in the way that she empowers other women and non-binary and femme, of course, including everyone, to really see themselves and own their sexuality, which is just so important. And I'm just really excited to have her. So let's jump in. So I'd love for you to kind of walk us through your personal story and you can kind of start wherever you want. Let's see. For me, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. And I think the most formative life experience, if you will, was getting diagnosed with stage three uh, colorectal cancer at the age of 21. And it was formative in a lot of ways. I think two big things happened as a result of that, that shaped my like professional trajectory, which was the first was losing healthcare coverage as a result of getting cancer. Cause at the time you you could only be under your parents' plan if you were enrolled as a full-time student. And I had to drop out of school in order to get treatment. And so, you know, seeing the medical bills pile up and how much it cost uh, led me to go work for Senator Claire McCaskill from Missouri And I knew I always wanted to do something that was going to be impactful in some way in a very like naive, um, idealistic, I guess, perspective of a 21 year old. And so I went and worked for her and then just got really frustrated with the rate of change and ended up moving to the private sector. But the other big thing that happened as a result of getting cancer was I ended up going through menopause at a really young age. And at the time, my doctors had, you know, told me that they were going to do radiation treatment to shrink the size of the tumor and that the radiation would have to beam through my reproductive organs in order to reach the tumor itself. And they said that as a result of that, the radiation would effectively make my reproductive organs non-functional. And of course, I asked like, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, you'll never be able to have children. And that seems like a very small price to pay at the time, given that like they were giving me like a 25 to 30% chance of survival. And so Of course, I said we would do radiation treatment. I never thought, you know, thought about it again until about a month in when I started having hot flashes and all these symptoms and went to Google to try to figure out what was going on. And that was when I realized that I was going through menopause. And I think I was, I had a whole lot of feelings, but one of them that stuck with me for a very long time was why did no one talk to me about this? Like, why didn't my doctors or the social worker sit down and tell me that this was going to happen to me at a young age and that it would have lifelong consequences and side effects. And so I took it upon myself to, because chemotherapy and menopause also affect your libido, your body 
stops producing estrogen. And so you, it doesn't self lubricate anymore. And so sex can be painful. There were all these very practical uh, consequences of going through menopause at a young age. And so I went to go buy lubricant and a vibrator in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. And um, the only place that sold them was this uh, shop that was in a strip mall next to the airport called Hustler Hollywood. And it was just one of those mortifying shopping experiences that stuck with me for a very, very long time. I actually also went to Hustler to get my first. Really? When I was in college. <laughs> right. Like I was 21 years old. And you think like, especially I, I remember being like, well, I'm an adult. Like I can go do whatever I want and still feeling just really embarrassed and walking into the store and being like, I have no idea what I'm looking for. It was just like a, like a wall of plastic pink phallic shaped products and just feeling like, why am I so embarrassed to be here? And I think that there are both like the lack of sex positivity and education that we grow up with, at least that I grew up with in the Midwest combined with like just how gaudy and uncomfortable those stores can be. Yep. So yeah, I, I, that kind of always stuck with me. And then, you know, I went to work for Claire McCaskill and then in management consulting. And then when I was at management consulting, I went on a grouper and just totally <laughs> fell in love with the idea that you could meet three other people in a new city for $20, including, you know, a reservation and a setup. And that was when I met you. Yay. I became obsessed with grouper and ended up applying to work there and worked there for just short of two years. Um, and then when I was there, started to notice there were a lot of direct to consumer companies because we were like very close on the same block as like uh, Glossier and Warby yeah. Parker. And we were mm -hmm. close with the artsy guys. And so I started to see this trend and was like, why is no one doing this for sexual wellness? Like it's such a big category and going in store is such a bad experience. So I started working on Unbound in like 2014. And it's been, it's, I mean, it's a lot of ups and downs, but um, yeah, we started it, my co-founder Sarah Jane and I, with the goal of just trying to create an online destination that we wish we would have had when we were trying to shop for these products for the first time. I mean, your journey is so important to where you are now, and it's so great that I also got to be a part of it, so. I know. Well, you saw me too when we were first working on it, and I remember we would all like still catch up and go get drinks. And I remember just being like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, yeah, it's not like I had like burned through my $5,000 of savings and was just like, I don't, I think I couldn't decide if I was like making a huge mistake or trying to just do something really difficult. So it led you to obviously go from one service industry to really another, which is amazing. And one that actually I feel like really resonates with you so strongly given your history. So tell us kind of what it was like when you obviously, like you just said, you ran through your $5,000 of saving and then you had to essentially ask for money for other people fundraising, right? Yeah. I mean, I saw you here in LA when you were actually meeting with investors and I'll always remember this. We went to, um, oh my God, Scopa. And we were mm -hmm. sitting at this high top table and this guy was like trying to come and talk to us. And, it, and she was like, we were like, listen, I've already talked to a lot of you today and I just can't <laughs> have enough time right now. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. I mean, that was also, I, that when I was going out to LA, that was when the company was definitely further along with people to at least take meetings with me. At first, I remember just like applying to every accelerator because we were at Grouper and Grouper had gone through Y Combinator and it had been such a formative 
like springboard for raising capital. So I was like, oh, well, I'll yep. buy the Techstars and Y Combinator and um, like a, like 500 startups. Like I, I applied to at least 10 different accelerators because usually they give you like $120,000 in exchange for a lot of equity that you give up. But I was so desperate for money. And I just got rejections across the board from like every single every single accelerator. So then I started applying for pitch competitions, like angel groups in New York, like just every pitch competition I could find, I applied for. And I wasn't getting into those either in New York City. And so then I started to think, okay, well, we have decent revenue. Our numbers are good. It's an overlooked market, but it's something that makes people uncomfortable. Maybe if I start applying to pitch competitions in cities where like, it's not as competitive, I will actually get in, which is what ended up happening. I did a pitch competition called Uber Pitch. This is when like Uber was at its height. And it was this ridiculous competition where you had to get into an Uber with an investor. The whole thing was filmed and you had 60 seconds to pitch them before you got out of the Uber and they picked up the next founder for like a pitch competition. (laughs) And I ended up placing second in that. Of course you did. I remember I pitched this like, like right around that same time I pitched uh, an all women angel group in New York city. And I thought, well, if anybody's going to understand this problem, it will be a group of, of angel investors that are women. And they just like the whole time stared at me with like just dagger eyes. Like it came around, like I, I finished my pitch and it was like, okay, does anybody have any questions for Polly? And not one person asked a question. And I was just like, okay, so I'm guessing I'm not going to get any money here. And so when I got second place in that, I ended up joining this accelerator that was out of Connecticut that I had to take the train up two hours each way, twice a week to meet in the basement of a public library that didn't even have Wi-Fi. And I remember just thinking like, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is such a waste. And I all the meanwhile, I'm like working on the company, still trying to get meetings with investors. And through that random accelerator, I ended up meeting someone who introduced me to, um, a VC named Paige Craig who ended up leading around who's actually based out of LA. But it was a very, it was like two and a half years before I got to Paige. And it was just at the time when we finally closed a seed round of funding, I was like 25 to $30,000 in credit card debt and on Medicaid living in a dump of an apartment with like two other 22 year olds and just I remember that apartment, by the way. Literally nightmares about your rat stories. Nightmares. Oh my gosh. We had so many mice and rats um, and horrible cockroaches. And it was right across from Penn Station. So loud. Every time the train would come by, the entire apartment would shake. And I was 30 years old. And I was just like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I went from working on like Wall Street and for a senator to now hawking dildos and vibrators and like (laughs) basically living below the poverty line. It was really, really tough, but you know, I I kept talking to our customers and they kept saying how much they love the brand and the products. And so I just, I felt like I couldn't give up. There was a definite need. There's still, obviously there is. And there's also a need for it to be empowered by a female like yourself. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, you know, this, everybody is kind of like, I don't know if that's going to work. Like, like your parents, your friend, they, they just want you to be happy. And they're like, do you really want to do this? Like, it's kind of like, there's so much heartache and it's so hard in the beginning. And there were so many times where I was like, I, I don't know if this is a good idea to keep doing this. 
And my mom would like beg me to be like, Polly, you were, you had so, so many career aspirations and you're never going to get it. Like, what are you going to put on your resume? It's like, I'm sure people write into you all the time. I've seen that they have where they talk about how your product makes their life better. And you're like, that's all that really matters. Because if people are taking the time to tell you that, then like you shouldn't give up. Um, But it's tough because you have every, you know, obstacle thrown your way when you're starting a business. Totally. And you're putting really yourself on the line the entire time. Yeah. And the other thing I didn't realize, and I don't know if you feel this way at all, but like for female, feminine, non-binary founders in particular, I feel like you have to tell your personal story as to like why you're working on what you're working on. And if you're focusing on something, whether it's like gut health or sexuality, like you, you have to be very vulnerable with your experiences. And that can be emotionally taxing. Like, I don't know if you ever feel that way, but there's some days where I'm like, I don't want to talk about cancer today. (laughs) Totally. I completely understand that. As opposed to a guy, they can just be like, well, this is my idea. And everyone's like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Where it's like, I don't have to qualify myself as a founder by sharing my personal experience because they walk in and they have immediate credibility as like a qualified individual to solve the problem. Like I've been reading, I've been reading the billion dollar loser book about Adam Newman from WeWork, but I just got through his first two failed startups that he worked on. And one of them was creating baby clothes as like a man in his twenties who doesn't have a kid, has no experience with clothing. And he closed like a half a million dollars of fun. And it's just like, I mean, it, it is interesting to see, and I think I, I'm hoping we're past this point in startups, but like for the last 10 years, we have consistently rewarded the ego, egomaniac founder that's like, I have the answers, yep. I'm going to change the world, and nobody stopped to question them, whether it was like Elizabeth Holmes, Adam Newman, Travis Kalanick, like all of these founders just kind of people were enamored with their confidence. And it's like, there's a flip side to that personality, which is like, you know, they're narcissistic and suffer from a lot of hubris. And I think hopefully we're starting to hold those founders more accountable now. But I have to say, I mean, I know you and I both feel strongly about owning what we're doing. And I think that's also really important in why I think hopefully we're both very successful where we do. I know you are, hopefully I will be. But with that said, like I have to own my story. You have to own your story. And I think it actually helps resonate with our consumer base way more that way specifically. And I like to think that hopefully it can actually give us that leg up in the long run. And it's already given you that, which is amazing. Because there's so many women you can actually identify with your story and they can be like, oh, wow, like, I had cancer or I had like trouble with like my sexuality or I didn't know like who I was attracted to and I figured it out and I'm so happy or how to pleasure myself or any of that kind of stuff. And those kind of Mm -hmm. questions are super valid and people just don't talk about them. But a brand like Unbound actually opens that forum for everyone to be able to ask questions and kind of own their sexuality. And I'd love to hear about how that actually has happened for so many people. I'm sure that you've talked to customers Yeah. I mean, I did all of our customer service for the first two and a half years. And I think also doing it at Grouper, I knew we saw firsthand at Grouper how disconnected customer feedback and product development were. 
yep. where customers would write in and tell you their stories, what was going on. And we weren't taking the opportunity to take that wealth of knowledge and let it inform what we were doing with the company. And so at Unbound, I think the things that have touched me most are the the women from non-binary people who write in more often than I would have ever imagined that have suffered from sexual assault, sexual trauma, um, cancer, and as a result have really created like a wall between themselves and their sexuality because mentally all of a sudden sex is something they associate with a negative experience in their life and through masturbation and getting back in touch with their sexuality and crafting their own narrative over it. Um, you know, we get so many emails about people that are able to overcome that mental block. I remember there's one in particular that I've had printed next to my desk forever that was as an older sister and her younger sister had gone to the same college and they both had been sexually assaulted at that college on different occasions. And she wrote to me and said, you know, I bought this for myself and then I bought this for my sister and like we will forever be like huge Unbound fans because this was such a horrible experience that we both had to go through. And through masturbation, we were able to like reclaim our sexuality. And I think that, you know, one out of four women are assaulted on college campuses. And it's a huge systemic problem that we don't talk about enough. And I think, you know, anybody that writes in that's just, that's able to say like, I was able to like change this narrative and take control of something that for so long felt like it was out of my control. um, Those are the stories that I think keep me going every day what about you I would love to hear because I know like after I had colon cancer so many people reach out to me to share what's going on in their toilet and with their bowel movements it's so true because people want I want to talk about it I mean I had symptoms for four years and I was I went to the doctor twice but I was very squeamish about it because I was too embarrassed to talk about pooping yeah Um, because it is just as stigmatized as, you know, sex, death, and money. So yeah. Do you get stuff like that too? My family and my household definitely had no limits when it comes to talking about poop. And I know that's kind of funny as well as sexuality, which is also funny. I mean, my mom like got me like a back massage vibrator when I turned 15 and was like, what a queen. She was like, her response. It was like in front of all of my friends. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm kind of mortified, but I also kind of love it. She was like, this will do much better for you than any guy that you meet until you get much older. And I was like, (laughs) Oh wow. Okay. Thanks mom. That tidbit of information. She wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong. (laughs) I mean, those types of situations where if even in high school or in middle school, you were actually able to have practical and open conversations about this. I think we'd all be a lot happier and maybe mm-hmm. it would halt like sexual assaults because people would be more familiar of what's right and wrong. And 13 states, only 13 require that sex ed be scientifically and medically accurate. That's the equivalent wow. of like, if you were to say only 13 states require science to teach you know, evolution. Like it's, it's crazy to me how low the bar is. And Obama did such a good job when he basically passed a law that said, if you're going to teach abstinence only sex ed, you do not get federal funding. And then of course that got repealed when Donald Trump got elected. But I agree that like, we have to have more conversations about pleasure and 
teaching what the clitoris is and consent um, for sure. I mean, I don't know what the percentages are on this, but I don't think a lot of women even know where it is or they don't even learn where it is until a certain age. Like, yeah, it's a huge issue. I mean, 40% of women report chronic difficulty, meaning almost always reaching orgasm during sex compared to less than 5% of men. It's such a basic thing that like we get so many people that write in and are like, I can't, I never orgasm during sex. What's wrong with me? And it's like, nothing is wrong with you because 70% of people who identify as women need clitoral stimulation in order to reach orgasm. And for the most part, that doesn't happen during penetrative sex. And so it's just a simple matter of like destigmatizing the fact that like, you know, actually actual like penetrative sex doesn't stimulate the vast majority of women on its own. That right there is huge, by the way. All listeners, please know that you're not alone. Yeah. There's a ton of people who need that both ways. I am. Yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's getting better though. I think in 1970, only 1% of women said that they had ever used a vibrator and today that's at 65%. So that's such a short, you know, that's 50 years. Um, so much has changed and it's incredible to see, like, we also get a lot of moms that will write in and say, I really want to buy something for my 15 to 18 year old daughter. Um, is that weird? What's appropriate? And to me, that's like, I love that your mom did. It's really amazing because it's like, I want my, you know, my child's first experience with pleasure to be one that they define for themselves as opposed to having sex for the first time and having no idea what feels good to you. Um, I find that to be like a really positive thing. No, I think that's extremely positive. I mean, everyone needs to take a, take a, take a page out of Alison Ace's book, you know? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Also with regards to how she hasn't aged a day. I would like to know that as well. I'm going to have her come on one time and she's enough to give us all of her beauty secrets. <laughs> Please. Yeah. No, it's true. But yeah, I mean, I, you're right though. I actually have a lot of people who have reached out and IBS is a huge topic right now. And that's been mm-hmm. a lot of people who have used confidence and I have emails on emails of people who have gone through fecal transplants and they're open about it. And I think it's so great. And I want to hold space for that hundred percent. I mean, that's kind of what the company stands for. And I mean, fecal transplants are like kind of like the last resort of, oh my God, my gut is in such dysbiosis and I don't know how I'm going to fix it. And this is kind of the only thing that might be able to get me to that next step of trying to be normal. And Mm -hmm. Then like, and also there's so much new stuff that's going on with that. And there's still a lot of research that needs to be done or to verify how effective it is in certain ways. But I think it's interesting. I was talking to a scientist on my team and she said that we're going to be freezing our poop basically, which is such an interesting thing. Cause it's kind of like your poop says more about you at different stages of your life than some of your blood work. And so your microbiome might be one thing three months ago, and then a complete different thing three months later. And that affects your overall health more than you know. Don't you feel like it's getting worse overall? Like I remember when I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, they said the odds of someone my age, it was literally like one in a million. And now it's increasingly prevalent, which is terrifying. And I just feel like IBS, Crohn's, like all of these digestive issues are actually becoming more frequent in young people than, than they used to be. And it's really scary because we don't, I mean, I personally haven't done enough research to speak on the topic, but like, I feel like we don't really have a root cause as to why it's happening. 
We don't. And it could be so many things. And there's a lot of research that's coming out based on obviously anything that's dietary or if like you come out of the womb and you're and you're in your part of like a C-section, you're not getting all the microbes that you need at coming out of natural labor. There's like a ton of different things that could obviously be linked. And, but first and foremost, everything starts with your diet and mm-hmm. also being able to be less stressed. Uh, so managing your stress levels because a lot of things that you're, that are going on up here actually affect here and vice versa. So if you're stressed out all the time and you're not eating your food and really like calm, nice areas or like separating it from work or your phone or anything like that, it's just wrecking havoc on your gut. Also, especially right now, I know that everyone really loves the whole work from home situation. Some people do, some people don't, but you're really bringing your work home and you're like living at work now which is Mm -hmm. super interesting. So that divide there is really hard. So a lot of people are stressed unknowingly because they don't have that divide anymore. And you need to figure out maybe when you're going to stop work, when you're going to stop looking at your computer. And I know that's really hard for me. I don't know about you, but I'm sure it's hard. Oh, it's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. It's impossible. And it's also like all the research. um, What's that company at at Leeson? At Lassen, they did. Remember we used to use uh, HipChat? Yeah. Is that what it was called? So the company that runs that just released this huge study that like actually looking at the hours that people are online has just increased dramatically since COVID started. Not to mention the low-grade anxiety we all have in the back of our heads of like everywhere you go, you have to have a mask, you need to wash your hands. Like it is, it is hard to relax and not have stress. And it's also really interesting because similar to the gut, um, sexuality and arousal are so similar where yep. all and the studies and show. And they're connected too. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And for women and femme people, the chemistry, like the way our brains react to arousal and orgasm are totally different from people with penises. So in order to reach orgasm, we, the parts of the brain that, you know, all of the MRIs show when women climax, parts of your brain that are associated with like anxiety, fear, stress are completely deactivated. And so when people write in and they're like, I have low libido, I have this, I have that. So often it's correlated to stress and anxiety because it's literally physiologically speaking, impossible to feel really stressed, scared, anxious, and also feel aroused unless it's like a kink element, which is a whole nother conversation and topic. But there is just so much correlation to our sexuality, our digestive system, all of this with cortisol and stress. Totally. And 90% of our serotonin is located in our gut. That's our happiness. Wow. I did not know that. If we're feeding our gut a bunch of really terrible things for it, like processed foods. And by the way, there's processed foods everywhere in our country. So we wonder why we have an epidemic with obesity. And so it's, it's, it's all connected. And it's so interesting. I mean, I didn't realize how intimately connected connected it was until I decided to take my health into my own hands only like five or six years ago. And I always felt like I was super healthy, but I just never. Yeah, you were like a collegiate collegiate athlete. <laughs> I know what like, but I struggled with like mass amounts of candida issues. And I mean, I don't even know if I talked to you about that, about that at work, but I had chronic yeast infections, and it was awful. It would be like I'd eat a bagel and I would like suddenly have a yeast infection just because of all the yeast that I ate in the bagel. That affects your sex life a hundred percent. Oh, a hundred percent. Once I realized that it wasn't just 
a really good thing for me to go to the doctor and get my antibiotics for, which is called Diflucan, which just wipes all the yeast out of your body just to come back three months later, just literally to the day, three months later on the dot, another yeast infection. Didn't matter though, because I didn't know this. And I wish that doctors told me this, your body needs to have yeast. Like you have you, you have yeast in your body. You can't just wipe it out. It's similar to when you, when you wipe out, like obviously all the good bacteria in your gut, you're wiping out all the good yeast. Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to populate both. And so you need to figure out what the good, the proper supplementation is for you. And at least for me, it was digestive enzymes. And obviously it could be different for so many other people, but for me personally, I realized that I had malabsorption issues because my microbes weren't trained to eat a lot of the types of foods that I was eating. Even if I ate like good doses of fiber, like kale, my stomach would like erupt just, and I was like, why? Like I'm eating good things for my stomach. I know. But I was eating like, I mean, too much of it at once maybe. And that's kind of one of the things too. It's like, you eat like small amounts of foods just to regain the strength of your gut Mm -hmm. or to kind of retrain it to eat those types of things. And so enzymes help rid the irritants and help you maximize those nutrients, which was just kind of like, wow, what? That makes so much sense to me. How is this not recommended to me so early on? And so it's, it's interesting. And I feel like absolutely correlated sexually. And I mean, if I'm not happy and my serotonin is really, was really down, then I'm not going to want to do anything sexual. Mm-hmm. Oh, a hundred percent. Not to mention if your stomach's upset, like, yeah. It's super fascinating, but I love that you're helping people own their sexuality. I'm so interested in hearing about how you, I guess, over the process have also um, owned your own sexuality. Yeah. You know, it was weird because I think starting the company, um, like I, I would never consider myself, like, especially growing up, I was definitely, I've always been like eccentric, but I was never that person that was like always talking about sex or anything like that. And so when I started working on the company, I was single and, I, and I'd been single for a long time. And I remember trying to go on dates with people and it was just a nightmare because people would make up all these assumptions about me because of Unbound yeah. and everything from like going on a date where a guy brought like a crop and was like, I know you're into this. And I was like, wait, what? You don't know me at all. Like to just people assuming that like, I would want to have sex with them right away. Like just a lot of different things that were neither bad or good, but just very presumptuous. And that was really hard. It was hard to kind of live this dual reality of being really sex positive, talking about sexuality at work all the time, but then also feeling like, in my personal life, like, I don't, it's like how you don't want to talk about work all the time. And that was definitely really hard as well as just friends and friends of friends that would all of a sudden share their most personal sexual stories with me. And so I had to learn how to like, you know, find the right language so that like, I wouldn't you know, deter people from sharing and being open because I love that and want that. But also like it got to a point where I was like, I'm not a sex therapist and I am appreciative that you're sharing your story with me. But like, you know, whether it's trauma or abuse, like you need to talk to a professional about this stuff. And a lot of the time that stuff would just get like kind of dumped on me and I'd be like, I don't know what to do with this information. And I and and so that was definitely really hard. Um but I've kind of learned to just kind of do my best to navigate a lot of those 
difficult conversations um, because people are so desperate to have a conversation about it that they see you as a safe space and a safe person to share these like really vulnerable experiences. And it can, it can be a lot sometimes. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey in terms of like my sexual identity and experience and juxtaposition of like the CEO of a vibrator and sexual wellness company. I mean, setting boundaries is so huge too. I mean, in all aspects of life. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. I think I, you know, I don't want to oversimplify it as like saying I'm a woman, but like I was raised by like, you know, a woman from the South who you, it is, you know, your job to make people happy and saying no is rude and like not polite. And you have to go to every social function and every single thing people ask you to go to. And so I'm still not very good at setting boundaries, but I am getting better. It's just hard. Like I, I, feel like whenever I can't do something that I'm like letting someone down. And in reality, I realize like, I'm not doing anyone any favors by overextending myself and then just being a miserable human, you know? Totally. And I can definitely be the same way where you feel like you need to help everyone. And then the people that you don't help, you feel guilty about and you feel miserable about. But ultimately, you just kind of have to like, wow, this is how many people I did help, right? Even Mm -hmm. if it's just five or six great. Pat yourself on the back. That's great. Yeah. I mean, well, tell me (laughs) on that note, uh, tell me a few things that you do on a daily basis that make you feel more confident just in general. Mm. Well, you know, I am that weird person in college that would like get dressed every day for class. And like, I try to still do that in COVID because I found like the first month I was just like rolling out of bed and getting on my laptop. And I was like, you know what? I should really try to like get up, wash my face, wash my hair, put on an outfit that is not an elastic band sweatpants. And like that definitely helps. Um, What else do I do? I love to take breaks to walk the dog without my phone, without music, just there's so few instances in which you see other humans that walking around the neighborhood and just having small interactions, even just like smiling at someone from underneath your mask. It's just nice to have some human connection. So that gives me confidence. And, um, I love journaling as well. I, I think in COVID also the camaraderie and companionship of being able to talk to like my co-founder all the time, like being able to have different conversations where I can talk through my feelings, those are more limited. And so journaling helps a lot um, with being able to just kind of not only capture what I'm feeling in the moment, but being able to go back and look at, you know, other entries, points of time where I thought where the, the world was ending and it, and it turned out not to be true. Um, <laughs> I think those are the, the daily things that I do. No, that's great. I have, I have a routine too. I'm with you. It's relatively similar. But I have to say today, I definitely had a day where I just rolled over. (laughs) That was me, honestly. I made breakfast. I had like my coffee, my water and all that stuff. So that was good. But yeah, I I was like, you know what? I got to do all the other things. But I did, I did try to brush my hair. It looks, you look great. Are you kidding me? If I rolled out of bed and looked like that, I would be delighted. Stop it. Stop it. Well, last question that we always kind of ask everyone who's been on the pod. how do you define confidence? Mm, you know, it's funny. I define confidence as 
the level of willingness of vulnerability that you are comfortable with. I actually think growing up, I thought being vulnerable was actually a weakness. And I think, especially through starting Unbound, I've realized that confidence and vulnerability are so directly linked. Um, Benet Brown's like one of my favorites, and she talks about this a lot, um, about how if you really want to be a good leader, if you want to be confident, you have to be willing to be vulnerable because that shows your willingness to just be human. I love that. Yes, we're all really just human, even though sometimes we're trying to be superheroes, especially when you have a company, you feel like you have to be a superhero for everyone. Yeah. And you got to practice saying, I don't know, because people come to you with problems and questions all the time. And it's taken me a long time to get comfortable, especially like pitching investors when they'd ask questions. I've gotten a lot better at just being able to say, you know, that's a good question. I don't have the answer to it, but I will get back to you. That's confidence. It's a willingness to admit when you don't know stuff, which is vulnerability. So yeah, I love everything you're doing, Lexi. It's so important. And I'm just very proud of you. Oh, thank you. I'm so proud of you too. It's so fun being able to have friends that you're just super proud of and want to just see, be with, and want to cheer on from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. I feel like every time I hear you or you're talking about something, I just get so excited. I'm just so proud of you too. Mm-hmm. And I think we're both trying to set a new precedent. And I think it's super important. Destigmatize digestion and destigmatize sexuality. Yeah. Like there you that. go. We got it. I love yeah. it. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate you being on here. Happy, happy to do it. Um, thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you liked it, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Your vote of confidence goes a long way, and that's the best way to support the show. If you want more information on our guest, you can find out how to support them in our show notes, and you can go on our Instagram, Confident Human Podcast. Don't forget to join me every week for new episodes available Wednesdays on all major podcast platforms. See you next week.